Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you please open up your Bibles to the book of Romans, the sixth chapter. We'll read this morning Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. This is our second week on this text. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we pray now that the words that come from my mouth will be used by your spirit to heal the brokenhearted, to give faith to the unbelieving, to strengthen the weak. We ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here will be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you know that uh, this text, I said last week, is a pivot point in the book of Romans with the beginning of what we have uh, labeled chapter 6, not in the original, but we make these uh, markings in Scripture, verses and chapters. But the reason that this is a new chapter uh, is that we recognize that here the Apostle Paul turns away from the doctrine of the fall. That doctrine that Pascal says, without which we don't understand ourselves. Nobody can understand themselves. No father can understand himself until he understands the fall. That the fall is... is hi, Megan. That the fall is absolutely foundational to your life. And I want to, I want to stop for a second and talk to those of you who are teenage boys. Those of you who have, have come into your manhood, all right, as adolescents, uh, it, it, it's very, very common to be depressed in high school because all of a sudden you, you bring into yourself a whole new level of your awareness of your sin. And it is unbelievably discouraging as a young man to see how impotent you are to fight your sins. You know, your, your whole being is opposed to authority, opposed to respect for authority, opposed to doing your homework, and a whole bunch of other things I'm not even going to talk about. And every young man goes through this. And what you have to understand is, if you don't approach that spiritually, if you approach that in terms of sports or in terms of uh, your looks... If God's kind to you, you approach it through your looks, you think you're good-looking, he'll give you pimples. And there is nothing about your life that isn't the product that, 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 that drives you crazy and makes you despair of yourself that isn't the product of the fall. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. And so your inability to honor your father, to honor your teachers, to do your homework, your inability to say no to the lusts of your flesh is the product of the fall. And until you face 
the reality of your own sinfulness and the fact that you can't escape it, that it is the direct result. And in his comments here on our text this morning, Calvin actually says that you bring it out of the womb. And I love that, not because it shows the, 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 the constancy and ubiquity, the universal nature of sin. I love it because it shows the personhood in the womb. You bring it from the womb. You have the fall in the womb. It's just that you didn't despair about yourself in the womb. You didn't have consciousness, or at least most of you didn't. (laughs) And so he starts by explaining the fall and showing how all of mankind is in bondage to sin. Then he solves the problem by opening up the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone. And it's a glorious doctrine. And he had brought you to the point where you despaired of yourself. And then he opens up the free grace of God. And it's such a relief because you submitted to his, uh, to, to uh, uh, oh, I can't get my words anymore. His indictment. You know, as you read his indictment in the first couple of chapters, you're like, yeah, yeah, that's me, 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 you know. And then all of a sudden he gives you the wonderful doctrine of God's free grace through the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And if that had been where the book of Romans had ended, we would all have been happy. The problem is, Christians and non-Christians alike, in this death that we live in the midst of, we live in the midst of death, in this veil of tears we live in the midst of, Even the precious doctrine of justification suffers from our sin. And so we pervert it. And so the minute we hear the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone, (laughs) now why did I just do that? Remember? The minute we're given the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone, The reason I'm doing that is, don't ever say that. Everybody always stops there. Justification by grace, through faith alone. Come on, give me some love. But not faith by itself. (laughs) Okay? In other words, this faith is never alone. And that's where we don't want to go. Because we want to camp out at the top of the mountain with God glorified in Jesus Christ and, you know, all all the famous heroes and set up a tent just like Peter, you know. We don't want to move then into sanctification. But the Bible says that without sanctification, no man will see God. And so if you think that you're justified, and you understand justification is free, you don't earn it by going to Mass, okay? And then you camp out there, you are not justified. You are not saved. Because there has never been a man or woman on the face of the earth who has camped out at their mountaintop experience and refused to become holy, who is ever saved. Okay? That's the perversion of the doctrine of justification. And the Apostle Paul knows that. Why? Because he knows his own sinful heart. He knows that he doesn't want to be sanctified. I mean, what did sanctification involve for the Apostle Paul? It was nasty. Apparently, for Paul's sanctification, he had done so much nasty stuff that he had to be shipwrecked and beaten and stoned and despised by the sheep that he loved and cared for. And I mean, the apostle Paul's sanctification is brutal, right? 
We always think of it personally. We think, oh, if I had been a member of his church, just look at what he suffered because of his love for me. Well, look at what he suffered because of God's love for him. God never stopped disciplining the Apostle Paul. We don't think of his suffering as discipline. But can you imagine how holy the Apostle Paul got? Because he was constantly suffering, 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 suffering for the sake of God, the bride of Jesus Christ. And so right here, it starts. What shall we say then? You've gone through the fall. You've gone through justification. You're at the mountaintop. You don't want to go off the mountaintop. And you certainly don't want to be sanctified. Right? And he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in in sin so that grace may increase? And this is always the way that we try to pervert the doctrine of justification. That we're saved by grace through faith and faith alone. (laughs) And that the faith never has to have any fruit because after all, it's all of Jesus. We had an elder here a number of years ago who spent a couple of years uh, trying to get me to agree that what happened after being saved didn't matter. And, you know, it was, it was the sort of experience where, you know, at first you don't want to believe that's what he actually thinks. And then over a course of time, he keeps hitting you with it, and you realize he actually does think that. And then you try to bore into his brain, why do you think that? And then you realize the reason he thinks that is when he was a young man, he came to faith in Jesus Christ as a young father, and what happened was the man who was influential at at that time in his life apostatized. And I'm not just talking about adultery. Adultery is not apostatizing. King David committed adultery. He didn't apostatize. He confessed it. I'm talking about a man who actually denied the faith. And so this man got to be older, and when he got to be older, he denied the faith. And so this elder was was trying to deal with the fact that somebody who had led him to Jesus and led him to grow and, and helped him become holy was now denying the faith. And so he decided that what was going on here was that this man was saved, but he just wasn't living for Jesus. And so he had to bring in a wall between being saved and fruit. But Jesus says, by their fruit you shall know them. It's painful, but it doesn't matter what testimony we have at a certain point in our life if we're not producing fruit. Because Jesus said, by their fruit you shall know them. And we're always trying to deny that fruit matters. This is, this is the nature of our perverse sin with the doctrine of justification. We want to say, well, you know, I'm going to sin that grace may abound. And you realize that this is what we all say. You say, well, I've never said that. And I say, oh, yes, you have. Let me ask you a question. Think of the sin that you have struggled with for much of, of your life. And you hate the sin, and when you think of it, you, you blush. You know, you're, you're, you're disgusted with yourself. But then you give in to it again. Then you come to communion, and you're faced with coming to the table unrepentant in that sin, or repenting, right? And you can't abide proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ without repenting of the sin. You can't resolve the tension by becoming hard-hearted. Are you with me? And so what do you do? Well, you repent. As worship, he prays the prayer of confession. You repent. And then you come to the table, and what a glorious thing it is that Jesus accepts you as a sinner, and you take his body and his blood, and it's joy, right? Are you all with me? Now, here's the perversion of that. So the next time you're tempted, you remember that joy and you think, you know, maybe actually doing that sin is, is necessary for me to have that joy. You sin that grace may abound. 
Do you understand this? And so you will get in a cycle of committing a terrible sin because it feels so good when you stop. You all with me? That's sinning that grace may abound. That's sinning that grace may abound. Okay? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Grace may increase. Uh, My father was generally a pretty calm dude. And generally speaking so, uh, he didn't really get irate. But when he did, his jowls would shake. And so when I think of my dad being angry, I think of his jowls shaking. And that's what's going on here with the Apostle Paul. His jowls are shaking. May it never be! This is an exclamation. Do you see it? May it never be! And you know, our, 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 our thinking about what the Apostle Paul says there is kind of like, uh, Paul, do you, think that, uh, do you think you said something? All you did was just try to intimidate us, Right? I mean, there's no explanation there. It's just, may it never be. Right? Right? There are an awful lot of things in life that we lie about without saying that good is evil or evil is good. Are you with me? We lie about them by not responding properly. The Apostle Paul could not have left that exclamation out of that part of the text without lying about the nature of sinning that grace may abound. In other words, the Holy Spirit inspired his exclamation and his anger. There are evils that are so evil that we must have our jowls shaking. And this is such an evil. I don't trust myself to talk about New York this week. I don't trust myself to speak of that heinously wicked population. I don't trust myself to speak about it. The idea that a little one who is older than the child that was born to Amy and Claudia can be slaughtered, and a nation can light its lights, or a city or a state, they can celebrate, they can applaud the slaughter of a human being made in the image of God, and then feel progressive when they outlaw capital punishment? It's mind-boggling. Do you understand why I'm bringing this up? I'm doing two things with it. I am showing you how awfully wicked the United States of America is. But I'm also showing you that we must testify truly about the nature of wickedness. We must not take the edges off, trim it, round it. We must not learn to speak mincingly of that sin that God calls an abomination, which is sodomy. The church is always trying to relate to the world by cutting the edge off God's words and God's word. You know what I'm saying? And and thinking that if we show ourselves magnanimous towards the sin that God condemns, then maybe they'll cuddle up to God through us. (laughs) Because we're cuddly. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Shake your jowls. May it never be. Do you understand this? Listen, do not learn to speak lightly of evil. 
The Apostle Paul is showing us what our approach to evil should be, and it is, may it never be! It's an exclamation. And if you don't have that in your vocabulary of fatherhood, okay, you hear me? If your children don't know enough to tremble when your jowls shake, and not because you're going to hit them, but because fatherhood is so incredibly tense and authoritative that they would rather die than see their father's jowls shake. May it never be. Okay, you with me? In other words, I'm saying, may it never be that we sin that grace may abound. But learn leadership and authority from that exclamation right here in the text. Do you, do you understand this? Learn it. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So he starts with an exclamation and then he moves into what? An explanation. First, he exclaims, then he explains. Okay? And here's the, exclama- the explanation. He says, how should we who died to sin still live in it? I thought we died to sin. Sweet that he uses the word we. He's identifying with the people committing this sin, of saying, let's sin that grace may abound. The apostle Paul is not you here, he's we. You know, look, I thought we died to sin. How can we still live in it? Now, how did we die to sin? Well, he opens that up now. He says, or do you not know that all of us notice us again? Us, we, okay? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, uh, there's an important thing here, which is there was nobody in that church who hadn't been baptized. There was nobody who was a Christian who hadn't been baptized. If you haven't been baptized, why not? Everybody had been baptized. So he's talking to the church. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Now, when he asks this question, he's assuming an answer. He's not really curious. What he's saying is, dude, may it never be. Don't you know? You died to death. You were baptized into death. You were baptized into death to sin. Remember your baptism. Therefore, we, again the we, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Okay, so here is the meaning of baptism. Baptism is to die and to be raised. It's to die to our lives and to be raised into the life of Jesus Christ. Baptism is our union with Christ. That's what it is. Calvin, at this point, talks a good bit about grafting. If any of you, I have never done it, but I'll bet there's about 10 people here who have actually tried grafting. How many of you have tried grafting? There's one. There's one. Come on. There's one. Okay, there's at least five. You all know what grafting is, right? You know how you'll look at a rose, and after winter, you'll see... Oh, no, because you'll see that the shoot is coming where? It's coming up from below the knob. So what they do is they take roses and they graft a beautiful rose onto an ugly root. And the ugly root is typical of ugliness. It just won't die, right? You know, and, and so you want the roots to not die, but you don't want the roots to show you what they can make beautiful because they can't. And so you take beauty, and it's kind of like a marriage, you know? <laughs> the man won't die, but he's a good root, you know? <laughs> 
And so the reason Calvin talks about this is he's showing that, the, that baptism and justification were united to Jesus Christ, all right? were grafted onto Jesus. Now, there are limitations to, 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 to describing it that way, but it's a good way to think about it. We're one with Christ, all right? And so he says this. He says, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Now, I fear that many of us today do not have the concept of death at the beginning of our Christian lives. I fear that most of us became Christians because of the doctrine of life and not the doctrine of death. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's been a systematic denigration and silence in the church about becoming a Christian being death. Instead, what we've said is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your death. But that's not what it says. The universal proclamation of the gospel in the last 50 years is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But that's not what God has. He actually has a wonderful plan for your death. And we know this because Jesus says, if any man... In fact, let me read it to you. In Matthew, it says that he said this to his disciples, but in the book of Mark, it actually says this, in Mark 8, 34 to 38... Then he, Jesus, called the crowd to him along with his disciples. So he said this to his disciples, but he also said it to the crowd, all right? He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And I think a number of us today would say to ourselves, well, I don't want to be Jesus' disciple, actually. I just want to be saved. Am I right? I mean, don't all of us really just want to be saved? Can't he just save me? I don't want to be his disciple. Jesus says, if any man desires, wants to be my disciple, he must deny themselves, they must take up their cross and follow me. And a cross is the weapon of capital punishment. It's death. They must take up their cross and follow me. For... You know, you hear that, and your natural reaction is, no, not the cross, right? And Jesus knows that, and he's going to warn you now, okay, you don't want the cross. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. No, not the cross. Okay, you want to save your life? All right, you'll lose it. That's what Jesus is saying. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus always gives us the warning and the promise. Warning, promise. He goes on and he says, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now, this should be foundational to your confession of faith and your thinking about the condition of your soul day after day after day. You should should never stop asking yourself, am I taking up my cross or am I ashamed of Jesus? It will mean different things for you than for your husband. You know, it'll mean different things for you than your children. But you best have a cross you better have a cross. And you better not think that your cross is your husband. Because you'd done be married. <laughs> you know how some women will talk about their husband as the cross they have to bear. Don't make gestures at me during a sermon. (laughs) I just like you guys so much. It's it's a trip preaching to him. He's a preacher. 
And so he's just communicating to me constantly as I preach. And my brain is capable of having an interaction with him while I'm preaching to you. That's dangerous. Listen, we have to have a cross. Why? Because we've been baptized into what? We've been baptized into death. We've been baptized into the death of Christ. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I don't live, but he lives in me. So you're wondering what I'm thinking, so I'll tell you. I had an older brother who was godly, and he was really, for years, more of a father to me than my own father was, because my dad spent two weeks every month in Chicago putting together a magazine. And the rest of the time, he was, uh, he was director of the Eastern Seaboard for InterVarsity. So you can imagine how often he was home. So I remember as a little boy dreading my older brother Joe seeing my report card. I don't ever remember worrying about my father seeing my report card, (laughs) you know? And Joseph, for whom our oldest son is named, was godly. He had hemophilia. And when Joseph got to be in high school, uh, it turned out that he aced the SATs or the ACTs. I don't know what it was. And so he applied to the best schools, one of which was Harvard. Harvard required an essay. And so my older brother Joe, being godly, what do you think he said in his essay? He said among other things, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And my father looked at that essay, (laughs) and my dad had to suppress himself. He did not want Joe writing that on his essay to get into Harvard. Why? We wanted Joe to have a chance. And he knew that that would... That would not be good. So guess what? Joe didn't go to Harvard. He went to Swarthmore. You know what Joe was doing when he wrote that on his essay. You know what he was doing. He was proclaiming Christ crucified. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, he did die a couple years later, had an accident. If any man will come after me, let him take up his cross. I don't know where your cross is, but I guarantee you, you best take up your cross. You have no reason to think that you belong to Jesus Christ if you spend your life running from the cross. Do you understand that? You don't get in through taking up your cross. You get in through the shed blood of Jesus. But any man who has faith in the shed blood of Jesus produces the fruit of the cross. Do you see this? The Apostle Paul says, Don't you know you were baptized into death? Don't you know? You were buried with Christ. I want to say something about uh, baptism here. You hear in the verse 
that he says this. He says, For if therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Okay? We've been buried with him through baptism into death. In this church, we have people that believe uh, in the baptism uh, of new believers and their children and people who only believe in the baptism of new believers. In other words, we have Baptists and we have Presbyterians. And for a number of years, I've been somebody who believes children should be baptized also. And so I've been in Presbytery meetings where men who are pastors and elders examine a man who wants to preach the gospel and have a call to a church. They examine people who who want to be pastors. And always, at some point in that examination, this is what happens. Somebody will lift their hand up, and they'll say, who do you believe are the proper subjects of baptism? And the man being examined up here, he'll say, well, uh, believers and their children, which is what's supposed to be said, all right, in a Presbyterian (laughs) group, okay? And then always the follow-up question, and what do you believe is the proper mode of baptism? And then he will respond, effusion, which is a, a, a snazzy word for sprinkling, all right? And then most of the time, there will be another question added on to that. He's done well so far in a Presbyterian assembly. Then he will be asked, if somebody came to you and asked to be baptized by immersion, would you do that? And he will say, usually, what he'll say is, well, I don't see any reason why anybody has to be baptized by immersion when the proper method a proper, sometimes he'll use the definite, sometimes the indefinite article, a proper, the proper way of baptism, as our confessions say, is effusion. And do you know why he says all those things? He says all those things because he wants to make it very clear that he was, when he was a child, he was a Baptist, but now as an adult, he's a Presbyterian. Right? I mean, that's the whole reason for all of that. Everybody's making a big show to each other that we're not Baptists anymore. Right? I mean, there are some natural-born Presbyterians, but if you've noticed, they're very few. Right? Y'all know this, right? Now, here's the problem with that. How on earth do you read a text like we read today and condemn immersion? How do you do that? Buried? It's just stupid. All it is is just schism. It's just Presbyterians spitting on Baptists and Baptists spitting on Presbyterians. That's what it is. The earliest document we have, other than the New Testament, is the Didache. And in the Didache, for the early church, what it says is, not, and it has a hierarchy of different baptisms. It starts with the best, and it works its way down to the worst. All right? And it's very interesting. Do you know what the first best baptism is? Come on, say it. All you Baptists who want to feel superior, say it. Immersion, right? Except, yeah, except it's actually not immersion. What it starts with is, go ahead, cold running water. In other words, not a swamp. You may have a swamp, but it may be very warm. What we did is we took Heather down to to the lake in Partyville when everybody had on winter coats. (laughs) And that might have something to do with (laughs) Heather's aversion to winter. You remember that day? How cold was it? Really cold, yeah. Listen, we don't divide over these things. Gluten, non-gluten. Wine, grape juice. Cold running water, immersion in a lake. And then it comes down, you have Caleb Hess who believes in a pitcher. 
A pitcher has a lot more to commend it than sprinkling, okay? We don't divide over these things. The truth is there's nothing wrong with sprinkling because we all get it, you know? We get it. We understand that they are dying to their lives and being raised in Jesus Christ. But we also don't say no to people that want to be immersed. Does this make sense? So I just wanted to stop and and say that. Now, notice where he goes next. He uses a word that we're uncomfortable with, but the Apostle Paul uses this word often. He says, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Now, is the Apostle Paul teaching baptismal regeneration there? If we've been baptized, no. No, he says what? If we have become united with him. Listen, there are many, many people who have been baptized who are not united with Jesus Christ. Many, many. In England, 20 years ago, I read something that said that 90% of the people in England have been baptized and 10% are in church on Sunday morning. Okay? If, if we, again, he's very, very compassionate in how he treats us. He says, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. That's the payoff of the whole text. So that what? Come on. So that what? You just heard it. So that what? Come on. Say it. So that I, say it. So that I, what? I, so that I will no longer be a slave of sin. I. Okay. I. Do you hear this? You must not any longer be a slave of sin. You must not. You're not going to sin that grace may abound. You're not going to have a hard-nosed attitude towards your husband. You're not going to teach your son that he's a total screw-up and you have no hope for him. You're going to stop it. You're not going to be a disrespectful son making faces at his mother. Unless you have not become united with Jesus Christ. And then would you please simply tell us that? (laughs) You know, would you just tell us? It'll make things so much easier. Keep coming to church, but don't come to the Lord's table until you're united with Jesus Christ. Don't think that you can sin, that grace may abound, and you can come to the Lord's table without this table being poisoned to you. Do you understand? God will judge you. And if you have a good church, your elders will be prophetic in judging you also so that you can prepare for the judgment seat of God. Nobody ought ever to be surprised by God's judgment. I want to read a couple things from Calvin and then give an illustration from my own life and I'll be done. Calvin says this about this text. He says, as long as we are children of Adam... And no more than men, (laughs) children of Adam, and we haven't become angels. You know, you're not a little angel. As long as we're children of Adam and have not risen above manhood, (laughs) okay, we are so completely held in bondage to sin that we can do nothing but sin. You're a sinner. That's what you are. But when we are engrafted, remember I told you Calvin talks a fair amount about grafting. When we are engrafted into Christ, we are delivered from this miserable constraint. Not because we at once cease to sin altogether, at once 
Stop sinning completely? At once, stop sinning completely? No, no, no. Not that, says Calvin. But in order that we may finally become victorious in the conflict... I mean, that's your heart, right? Oh, please! Give me a victory. Please! Not for my wife. Not for my children. Not for my pastor. Not for my elders. Not for my boss. For me! I want a victory! Calvin continues, he says, if you are a Christian, you must show in yourself a sign of your communion and the death of Christ. And the fruit of this is that your flesh will be crucified together with all its desires. Show us your flesh being crucified. And of course, that's the very thing that we want to hide from each other. But it's the very thing that encourages us is when somebody shows their flesh being crucified. I mean, you get, you get it? Have any of you ever read Life Together by Bonhoeffer? It's hard to say which is my favorite chapter, but I think my favorite chapter is about confessing your sins to each other. He says sin always makes you hide. It always makes you go secret. It always makes you go alone, right? And Calvin says this. He says... Do not assume, however, that this communion is not a real one if you find traces of the flesh still existing in you, but you are continually to study to increase your communion in the death of Christ until you arrive at the goal. All right, a story, and I'll be done. So I went to a seminary that was uh, very sophisticated uh, Billy Graham was sort of the guiding light behind it. Harold John Ockengay, all the big wigs of, at that time, the ascendant religious commitment of our country, which was evangelicalism. And Tim Keller had been there a couple years before I was, and uh, Scott Hahn was there while I was there, and uh, a number of, uh, actually, your dad. Your dad was there. Megan, this is Megan. And her dad was there at the time. And he's very sophisticated. And uh, so here I am. And my father has taught a class there on death and dying a couple years before I get there. And it's in, it's in the middle of the most sophisticated part of Boston, the North Shore, where all the rich people live, right? And uh, here is this, 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 this dunce named Tim Bailey. And this dunce, this disgusting man, is married and has a daughter, and he stands outside the classroom building smoking cigarettes before class. And honestly, there's not another person on the campus that stands outside smoking cigarettes. I never had company, (laughs) except my friends. My friends would stand, but they didn't smoke. And it was humiliating, right? I mean, it wasn't as bad as today, you know, but it was still humiliating, you know. And so Mary Lee and I go home, and we're visiting our parents out in Chicago in Bartlett, and I'm up in the bedroom with my mother, and I looked at my mother. I was standing in the doorway, and she was over by the window, and I looked at her, and I said, hey, Mud, and this is what we called my mother, Mud, M-U-D, all of us. I said, hey, Mud, would you pray for me that I would stop smoking? Now, Our family was not what you would expect, which is parents that just were deathly against us smoking. Um, My dad did send me a little business card in the mail that had a smoker's card and a coffin with a guy lying in the coffin dead, you know. (laughs) So he didn't want me smoking. But they weren't moralistic about it at all, right? But... I want my mother to pray for me, so I asked her to pray for me. Mud, would you pray for me that I'll stop smoking, right? Now, what do you think she said? (laughs) What my mother said to me was, Tim, why do you want to stop smoking? 
And I was flabbergasted. I thought I'd come up with a perfect prayer request. <laughs> Mud, would you, would you pray for me? I stopped smoking. Tim, you know, I, I never please my mother. Tim, why do you want to stop smoking? And I was so surprised that I looked at her and I said, what do you mean, why do I want to stop smoking? She said, that's just what I asked you. Why? Why do you want to stop smoking? Well, <laughs> I thought about it. And I didn't like what I, what I thought. Why did I want to stop smoking? Well, you all know why. The only reason I wanted to stop smoking was not to honor God. It was because it was so humiliating. So I stood there feeling like an idiot, but also grateful for my mother. And then she said this, when God wants you to stop smoking, you'll stop smoking. And some of you are dense enough to think that that meant my mother didn't want me, wanted me to keep smoking. You know, you probably are sitting there thinking, well, she didn't have the proper priorities for her son. No, no, no. My, my mother was engaged in utterly serious work on the soul of her son. She wanted her son to be godly. Do you understand this? She wasn't she, she, my mother was not concerned that I harm her reputation at Gordon-Conwell or her husband's. What she wanted was for me to be humble before God and to be godly. She wanted me sanctified. She didn't want me smokeless. Okay? And so I want to say to you in closing that it's very easy when it comes to sanctification to displace sanctification with pride and to make a big show out of confessing our sins and pursuing the holiness without which no man will see God and to make a show of, of being baptized into his death and all this stuff and remove our conscience, sear our conscience, and not not be sanctified. Sanctification is brutal. It's hard. And that's the point. That's the point. That's the point. Okay? Please give us the benefit of your sanctification. Show us your wounds. These are scars that actually we want to see. There's nothing more beautiful to a Christian than the wounds of the Holy Spirit on another Christian. Okay? Okay, let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of your Spirit on us, and please keep us from growing weary in this well-doing. Please keep us from becoming discouraged. Father, help us to have our hope in you and not in ourselves. Take away our pride that we might be able to give the joy of sanctification to those that we love and live with. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.